Thank you, Jake and worship team. Um, almost didn't want to come up. We could just keep doing that for another half hour. We might be okay. If you're turning your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter 2 this morning. And as you're turning, I want to talk for a moment about where we are in the book of Romans. So we've been going through this book verse by verse for a while now, and we're coming to the end of chapter 2. Paul started a thought in chapter 1, verse 18, and he's been developing it for over a chapter now. He said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so then he launches into a long diatribe of human sinfulness, starting with the Gentile, the pagan sinner, who would suppress the truth of God's reign entirely. We see a practice of exchanging God's truth for a lie so that any whim, any passion might be celebrated. Next, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul condemns the moralist who might establish his righteousness through the judgment and condemnation of others. But moralism falls apart in view of God's judgment through the perfect person in Jesus Christ. And so we come to our text today in which Paul's wholesale condemnation continues against yet another way we might wrongly respond to a holy God. One thing I want to mention before we get into our passage. So it's easy to read through these chapters and identify with a certain way of rejecting God's truth. So we have these broad groups into which we assign a common characteristic or a common response. So as you read, if you gravitate towards a lawlessness or a licentiousness, you might say, well, that's me. I fall into the camp of the pagan who would try to reject God's truth by exchanging it for sinful idolatry. But there's a danger in wholly identifying like this. Because you could easily say, well, since I'm more prone to a chapter one response, this text in chapter two isn't primarily talking to me. Well, I have bad news. So these passages, when taken together, don't just represent different kinds of sinners. They represent different kinds of sin. We don't put those who most commonly practice licentiousness over here and those who most commonly practice self-righteousness over here and preach them separately as if they're two different groups. We put everyone together in one boat and we say your heart, despite what any Disney movie might tell you, is desperately wicked and evil and would seek to suppress the truth of God. So that's why I'm so glad Carlton preached 118 as a summary statement for this entire section. We're all engaged in one act, the suppression of the truth. And there are manifold, there are many ways where each of us try to do that, not just one. So if you check out, if you say, eh, this one's not mine, this is for someone else, you're creating a safe haven for our enemy. You're creating a place where you can say, no, I don't need to go check over there for sin. I think it's fine. I hope you give no such quarter to a deceitful enemy this morning. So with that in view, let's read our passage. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, 
Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen. Let's pray and we'll dive in. God, we are thankful. God, that you have given us your word, that you have given us your church, that you have given us your body, that you have given us song, that you have given your truth to your people. And Lord, we come by the truth you have given us in the name of Christ to ask that you would open our hearts, that you would circumcise our hearts, that you would work through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning to destroy everything that would come between us and you. Every place where we would seek to suppress the truth, where we would cling to unrighteousness, even in religious looking things, God, that you would not leave one standing because we know that they are a weight, they are a sin that would entangle us and pull us from you. So God, we beg that you would remove them, that you would carve them out, that we may have more of you this morning. Amen. So the text begins in verse 17 with an interesting conjunction. But I can't help but imagine what the hope was when everyone heard this letter for the first time. Do you think in their minds, a lot of them went, okay, the hard part is over. Maybe we're getting to a silver lining. Like when your baseball coach was fussing at you, right? You played a bad game. He said, we couldn't hit the ball out there. We couldn't keep the ball in front of us in the field. We were making mental errors, but at least we hit the ball okay tonight. So Paul follows his conjunction. If you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God, all of a sudden Jews start to sit up a little bit straighter. He's talking about us, and so far it's, it's not so bad. Paul goes on, and know his will, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. The Jew is thinking, well, hey, I know the law. I've been taught it. I've heard it for years. Paul goes on, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and here's where the amens would start happening if this would be preached in the South today. That's right, the Jew would say. We have the law. Since we have the law, we are the guides, the lights, the instructors, the teachers. Amen, Paul. And then the text takes a turn. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Full stop. Wait a minute. I thought us Jews were getting a commendation here. Paul goes on. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. 
the Jewish listener is no longer sitting up straight. He's realizing, we're not getting a pat on the back here for being in possession of the law. Instead, the Jewish, Jewish audience, who would hope in the mere possession of the law, is met with rebuke. You claim to hold the law as dear. This is some great treasure of your heritage, yet you cast it off in all kinds of ways. You steal, you commit adultery, you are idolaters, you break this law. I used to shoot pistol competitions fairly regularly. Never now and again, we'd have the following happen. This, is, this ties in, I promise. Uh, the range I shot at, it was cold until about 9 a.m., which meant no firing of any kind was allowed. All guns were unloaded, they were put away in holsters, right? Nobody was allowed on the range. And so we'd get a new guy every now and then we'd never seen before. And he'd roll up, and, and he, you know, you do what you do in any competition. You start kind of sizing him up, right? With, what kind of gun is he shooting? What division is he in? What caliber? What loads? And sometimes they would pull up an individual who just wowed us, right? Out of his bag comes the newest, sleekest, most fancy-looking race gun from the top Israeli gunsmith, right? He's got uh, a, the hottest new caliber, a belt full of high-dollar magazines that would make Batman jealous. Like, his gear is set to run, and he's going to go smoke it out there on the pistol course. And this fellow would be impressive before about 9 a.m. But remember what happens after 9 a.m.? The competition starts, and you get judged based on one thing. Not the quality or the cost of your gear, but how quickly you can put accurate shots on target. I never forget the first time I saw somebody. Like, he had a setup worth more than the car I drove to the range, and he got out and failed miserably. So one of my favorite kinds of targets are called poppers. They're little steel plates about yay high, and they make a really satisfying ting sound when you shoot them, and they fall over. So our well-equipped shooter stepped up to the first stage of the match, and he proceeded to engage with this really hostile-looking set of poppers. And he steps up, timer goes off, beep, and we hear, pow, 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 no ting. Poppers are standing. Pow, pow, finally, ting, four or five shots in, he hits one. And so he proceeded with great effort and an inordinately large amount of time to clear the course. And I can tell you, the impressions we had of that individual changed drastically. Before 9 a.m., he looked pretty good. After 9 a.m., seeing how he stacked up against what really mattered, his gear didn't save him. Accurate barrel didn't make him shoot straighter. A gun that will run like the wind didn't make him any faster. And hear this, church. Having a tradition or understanding of the law does not make one righteous. Paul drives the point home by quoting one of the most incisively scathing accusations we find in the Old Testament. As it is written, the very name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This language out of Isaiah and Ezekiel, the Jewish audience would have been familiar with. And I want to read Ezekiel 36 so we get a sense of what Paul is trying to say. He says, as it is written, to point their eyes to the context of this passage. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds, their works. We've been talking of that. Their ways before me were like the uncleanliness of a woman in her menstrual impurity, so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. So we have 
judgment on an impenitent people. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, linked to chapter 2, blasphemed among the name of the Gentiles. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they had to go out of his land. But I, the Lord, had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations." So why was Israel sent to exile? They defiled their land by their ways and their deeds. The result of God's righteous judgment that we talked about last week was to declare their ways and their deeds, their works, Romans 2, 6, as far from God because their works were the fruit of idolatrous hearts. Now, I'm sure you're asking the question, right? Was every single person engaged in theft, adultery, and idolatry? Like, in what ways should this condemnation be applied? And I, I think we would be foolish. We would have to be foolish to say that every single Jew in the judgment of Ezekiel 36 had gone and killed another, had spilled the blood. But much in the same way that every single Jew in Romans 2 probably hadn't committed adultery. But God poured out his wrath upon the Israelites for the blood that they had shed in the land. They were a people whose deeds were marked generally by the shedding of blood and by idolatry. Out of impenitent hearts, collectively as a people, their deeds flowed. And why? This is why the judgment of God fell on the nation of Israel in Ezekiel 36. And notice the response of the nations. The nations say, these are the people of God, but yet they're judged by God, and they're cast far from his land. They're marveling that the nation that was supposed to be the light, this nation was going to be a mighty kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But instead, they are in exile under the rule of another as a band of murderers and idolaters. And don't think this likeness was lost on the Jews hearing this message. Where were the Jews in Romans chapter 2 in our historical context? They were under Roman rule and authority. Paul is no doubt establishing a likeness with the impenitent and rebellious Israel of Ezekiel and Isaiah that has been judged by God and cast far from their land. He's showing this law that they might hope in as their savior has brought only condemnation and judgment to those who break the law. Church, this text <clears throat> should sober us. We, Grace Fellowship, in the year 2022, often boast, rejoice, and sometimes even gloat in our right theology. We believe the truth, and we go to great lengths to ensure our doctrine is sound, and our teaching aligns with Scripture as confirmed by the historic orthodoxy of the faith. We've got this right. And while I certainly believe sound doctrine is important, don't hear that wrong, the subtle creep of love for and relationship with the doctrines themselves instead of the great God they're meant to point to is real. It's subtle. 
And it's a way here we as Grace Fellowship in our body might seek to reject God and suppress the truth. What would it look like, you might ask, in our context? To boast in the mere possession of a doctrine? So we believe in the doctrine of sola scriptura, right? It's right here in the front of the podium, if I remember correctly. We claim that only the Bible, the written word of God, is the authority of God. And we believe that the word of God is sufficient. It alone is enough to come to know Christ and to grow to maturity in him. Yet for all our stated doctrine of what scripture is, does the pattern of our lives communicate its place as the very word of God? Paul Tripp asks a litany of questions meant to illustrate this point like this. He says, if you really believe that the Bible is the word of God, preserved by God for you, wouldn't it be the most valuable, esteemed, treasured, and well-used possession in your life? Would you not love the moments when you could sit with it, read it carefully, study its contents, and meditate on its implications? Wouldn't you commit yourself to be an avid reader of and a lifelong student of the Word of God? Wouldn't you work to be sure you have understood it, interpreted it correctly? Wouldn't you treasure the teachers and preachers God has raised up to walk with you through his word? Wouldn't you want to make sure that everything you desire, think, say, and do was done in joyful submission and careful obedience to the word of God? Wouldn't you want to apply it to every area of your life? Wouldn't you run to its comfort and heed its call? Wouldn't it have more influences over your decisions than your friends, than Google, than the voices on social media? Wouldn't biblical literacy and theological knowledge be a lifelong quest? Wouldn't you be looking for every opportunity to share its glorious message with others? And wouldn't you grieve those moments when you had to confess that you ignored or resisted its message? Wouldn't it be the thing that shapes the way you approach every area of your life? Wouldn't quiet time when you separate yourself from other people and other responsibilities and it is just you the Lord and his word be your favorite part of the day. Wouldn't you give heartfelt praise for the amazing gift of his word every day? Do you see? We too can boast not in the great God of the Bible, but the possession of doctrines about the Bible, historical tradition, lived experiences as a way of suppressing the truth. We can then interact safely, argue the subtleties of the hypostatic union, or fiercely debate an eschatological position without ever having to teach, reprove, correct, or train ourselves. And the worst part, our idolatry becomes a salve for our conscience, where the Holy Spirit would convict and permeate and root out sin within us. We have a smokescreen. Oh, I'm talking about the very word of God. That means I'm fine. Let it not be said of us, Grace Fellowship, that our boast is the law. May we not be a church that is known for doctrine alone. You'll notice it's not on the podium. Doctrine alone, it does not save. It does not sanctify. It will not make us right with God. May it be said of us, Great Fellowship, And more broadly, the people of God, that we boast of the great God to whom the doctrines, when rightly understood, point. 
to come here, that it would be to see a people who love him, who walk daily with Christ, and who shine as lights in the world because of the transforming power of the God whom we serve. So, with our hope in mere possession of the law destroyed, Paul moves on in verse 25 to begin speaking of circumcision. And so before we dive into this part of the text, uh, I do want to lay some quick groundwork, circumcision 101. Uh, given, wait, not, not medically, Dr. Johansson up there is up there scared. No, biblically, doc, don't you worry. Uh, so circumcision was given way back, Genesis chapter 17, when God himself made a covenant with Abraham. God promised an everlasting covenant with the offspring of Abraham. And circumcision was given as a sign of the covenant between me and you. From that day forward, every child born to the house of Abraham was circumcised as a sign of the covenant. So the practice continued, further codified in the Mosaic law, um, and it kind of became this marker uh, of Jewishness uh, to the people of this time. It was kind of like a Sam's Club membership card, like to be a male of the Jewish nation, right, to whom the promises of God belong. Um, so that's really rough intro. That is what circumcision is. I want to make sure we have the context for this passage. So next, why do we move from possession of the law to circumcision, right? We get no transition here. Paul's like, possession of the law, boom, circumcision. How are these two ideas linked? Paul is interacting with the most likely objection that might arise from a Jew. Namely, whoa, 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 Paul, we have not only the law, but we've also got this covenant sign from God that we're his people. What do you do with that? So with that in view, let's start into verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So in a very pointed way, our text says, it's possible to have this physically signed. It's effectively worthless. Now, the Jews already had a concept through which circumcision could become uncircumcision. It was possible for a man who was born a Jew, circumcised in accordance with the law, to grow up and say, I wish to renounce my Jewish faith, no longer be a part of the Jewish nation. However, Paul argues it doesn't even take that much to make yourself cut off from the covenant. Paul says, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You're cut off, excluded, outside the promise. And then he keeps going. He makes it worse. Verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now Paul pushes his point further. He's putting two scenarios before the hearer. On the one side, we have a physically uncircumcised man or woman who keeps the law. And on the other side, we have a Jew possessing the written code and circumcision but breaks the law. And so now we've got, we've got some questions to answer to understand this contrast. First, what does it mean in our text to keep the law? I'm so thankful that, that Corey hit on this point last week. You heard it in our call to worship that I think he has Jeremiah 33 in view. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law 
within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Do you notice the language? It echoes the covenant he made with Abraham, that Abraham would be his people, and he would be his God. Through what? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the writing of the very law on their hearts. In speaking to a mix and Jews and Gentiles at Rome, Paul isn't referring to somebody who magically obeys. He's referring to the Gentile Christian. One who was not circumcised, who did not boast in being the people through whom God's laws came. So we have a Gentile believer who lives in obedience to God's law as revealed to the true people of God, contrasted with a circumcised Jew who has the written code yet has rejected God's law. Secondly, what does it mean that one will condemn the other? Are we handing a gavel to the Gentile? Right? We just got done talking about judging. Why is one group of people already condemning the other? So Paul is presenting evidence against the Jew. He's saying that if one who began outside of the historical covenant is able to rightly believe, what does that say for you? One who is given a rich heritage of the historical covenant meant to point you to the right worship of God and the obedience that flows from it. What is the state of your heart that you would so flagrantly reject, right? Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 12 when he's speaking to his audience. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, that is Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Remember what Jonah said to Nineveh, right? Like Jonah, he could, he could kind of be described as a half-hearted messenger. He had a vested interest in Nineveh not repenting, right? All we have recorded of Jonah's message is this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I'm just saying, if that evangelist comes to your local church, he may not get invited back. But look at what happened. And all the people all the way up to the king, they wept. They repented in sackcloth and ashes. And Jesus said, if that kind of response can be brought about with a fallible, half-hearted messenger, what kind of response should you be capable of? Oh, generation that listens to the very words of Christ himself. The fact that Nineveh happened stands as an article of condemnation, a sign of your hardness of heart. So too with believing Gentile Christians. Their belief and the obedience that flows forth from their belief stands as an article of condemnation for the Jews. The Jews had the rich traditions. They had the covenant signs. They had the knowledge of the law. Despite having all of this, they remained impenitent and disobedient to the Lord. And what is the final result? of this distinction, the contrast between the two, we have to land at the conclusion. When we have Gentiles repenting in obedience and Jews with the tradition and the law and all of these things, yet impenitent and disobedient, verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Now, this thought may seem a little strange at first glance. We are, why are we so concerned, Paul, with being identified as a Jew? Why can't we just say, like, hey, we're Christians, we're followers of Christ, leave it at that. 
Well, it's because the Christian faith, it didn't start 2,000 years ago. It wasn't new when Jesus came on the scene. It's the same belief that goes back through Israel, through Isaac, and to Abraham. Today we believe that we who are in Christ are in fact Abraham's offspring, the great nation our God is building, and heirs to the covenant made all the way back in Genesis 17. There is continuity. Amen. So when our text speaks of being a Jew, wrapped up in that definition is the great covenant promise of being the people of God. And notice what the text says. This status of being the true covenant people of God is not granted based on physical, ritual, or outward signs alone. Praise God that a true circumcision, a true salvation, a work of God is so effectual that it changes a man's very nature by the new birth of the Holy Spirit. But wait, you might say, are we introducing a new concept here? Would Jews have had any grid for the idea of an inward circumcision of the heart? I'm glad you asked. Always be asking, answering questions of their text. Look at Deuteronomy 30. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. God is describing the restoration of a scattered but repentant Israel. God is planning to bring Israel back, and this is how he's going to do it. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where your Lord God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And look at this work that God does in restoring his people. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. And that you may live. When God is restoring his people, he will circumcise the heart. And notice what follows from a circumcised heart. Do you hear? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. God's work, the circumcision of the heart, leads to the outward obedience that signals the internal change of the heart and life. So you may be sitting in your seat, thinking, of course, no one here hopes in his and her identity as a Jew. I don't know that we have many or any ethnic Jews in our midst, and no one, at least not that I've heard, I hope not, boasts in their covenant inclusion that their circumcision brings. But this attitude, a hope in outward signs alone, is pervasive in our culture, in our southern gospel attitude today. I've sat in far too many funerals where a so-called man of God gives a eulogy that goes something like this. Well, I've known, we'll call him Johnny. Johnny since he was a boy. And I know that many of you are wondering whether or not he knew the Lord. He spent all of his days outside of church and he wrestled with the same sins that marked most of his life. But let me tell you a story about Johnny. When he was no more than eight years old, he came over to my house and he sat down at my kitchen table and we opened the Bible together. And it was there I asked Johnny, do you believe you're a sinner? 
Why, yes, I do, he replied. And I asked Johnny, do you want to go to heaven to be with Jesus? Well, yes, I do, he said. And right there at that kitchen table, Johnny prayed the sinner's prayer to receive Christ into his heart. And the speaker will often offer assurance. And I know that we'll see Johnny in heaven because of that conversation and that prayer he prayed right there at my kitchen table. Blasphemy. Just as the Jews would attempt to obligate God's favor by the outward sign of circumcision, so too we would tie the favor of God to the utterance of some cosmic spell. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sins so I could be forgiven. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for coming into my life. Amen. Abracadabra, the spell has worked. And because you have uttered those words, you can rest easy, knowing that an eternity in heaven is assured. Blasphemy. Christ says it so plainly in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Saying, Lord, Lord, uttering the sinner's prayer, then going on to live according to your own will should offer you no hope in partaking of the kingdom of heaven. What a low view we have of God's work in salvation. Would we say that a merciful and mighty God sent his own son to die for the very enemies he hated to move them from death to life and then after moving his children, after being adopted into the very king's family, that God's work stops? Would we say that a God who is so mighty as to rescue us from the very pits of hell, the schemes of our enemy, just steps away and leaves us to our own devices? Let me ask you like this. Would a loving and kind mother and father go to great lengths to adopt a child, spending great sums of money, hours upon hours of paperwork, wading through mountains of approvals and stamps in suspense and eagerness, all to finally be able to adopt a boy or a girl and then simply remove their care and leave that child to their own devices? Would they bring the child home and instead of Loving that boy or girl through the inclusion of rhythms in the home, setting a place for them at the dinner table, taking them on outings, vacations. What if they were content to let the child live exactly as he or she did in the orphanage, completely removed from any care or transformative love of the mother and father? We wouldn't call them kind and loving parents. We would call them unfit parents. When we claim that God can adopt us at his own, yet us as his children bear no characteristics of being in his house, we are dragging his name through the mud. We're handing the world a picture of a God whose adoption is worthless and a meaningless externality. We're claiming that we can be in the very household of God and not have our lives changed. What nonsense. May it never be. The work of God in saving you is never removed from the work of God in sanctifying till the end. When you're adopted and you're his, you will bear the characteristics of the household of God. If your hope today is only that you once prayed a prayer, but you have known nothing of the God to whom you prayed ever since, your boast, your hope, is grossly misplaced. 
if you would hold to externalities. I'm a good Christian. I'm regular in my church attendance. I've been baptized, and I've completed my church membership course. Yet you can't remember the last time you were broken by your sin or were speechless in awe as you were struck by the majesty of God in prayer or study or song. Your boast may be misplaced. I mean, praise God for Scott Mink a few weeks ago. Scott, when he gave his testimony before he was baptized behind us, Scott told us that he was baptized as an infant, but as he grew in his faith and knowledge of the scriptures, he came to understand that the only thing that matters is faith and hope in Christ, not being baptized as an infant, as an external sign. And he wished to then follow in the sign that follows the faith that saves So finally, look at how this chapter closes at the end of verse 29. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you know why it's appealing to hope in the sinner's prayer or baptism or a life that looks religious on the outside? Because man can't see our hearts. When we want to suppress the truth, do you know what serves to tamp down our conscience? We turn our ears sideways. We listen for the praise of man. So my family, we like to jam out when we're in the car. We listen to all kinds of music, worship songs, silly songs, secular songs, all kinds of songs, and we sing along. Well, I do anyway. Um, You can probably see my kids rolling their eyes. I like to sing two ways, um, obnoxiously loud, and I share this with Carlton just absolutely terribly. I do not have a good singing voice. But something happened recently, though. I hopped in my car And instead of cranking up the radio, turning on a podcast, I just left the radio off. I wanted to kind of have some windshield time, think through some stuff. After I pulled out of my driveway, I started going. About 30 seconds, I let off the gas, and I heard in the car. Uh Uh-oh, that's not a good sound. I kept driving down the road. About 30 seconds later, I heard it again. Grinding sound in the car. Not good. And the entire time I was in the car this day, I heard this sound over and over and over. And I realized something as I thought about it. I didn't have any idea when that noise started. Didn't. Why? We were jamming out, cranking up the volume. And the engine all the while was going. And we didn't even notice. So what am I to do? Well, I mean, I can do one of two things. I can listen to the sound of my engine, get on the phone, call the mechanic. Probably what I need to do. Or... What if I just crank the music right back up every time I get in the car? I don't hear the noise anymore. I mean, is it still there? Sure. But you know what? That's not what I'm thinking of. When I drive, and all I'm doing is I'm hearing the noise, I'm hearing the noise, I'm hearing the noise. That prompts me to go call a mechanic. When I drive, and I turn up this latest Lanny track that Corey has sent me, I don't hear it. I'm like, here, not Lanny fans. Maybe we'll be like John Hageman. We can listen to some pipe music in our cars. Why does Paul wrap up with the contrast of man's praise and God's praise? Because man's praise is the volume knob in my car. The more I turn that up, the less I have to listen to the problem with my engine. When I want to suppress the truth, when I want to pretend there's no problem with my engine, when I want to remove the reality of God's reign, how do I do it? I turn up the volume on man's praise. 
Look at my knowledge of the law. This is proof that I'm in the covenant. Look at these things. I can look religious. I can trick you into thinking I'm really walking with God. I can even gather accolades from the people of God for the supposed work I'm doing for the kingdom, all as a means of drowning out the real problem, that my heart is far from God. So as we close today, I do want to point out the one breadcrumb that Paul leaves us. A small phrase in verse 29, I, I read past it and I read past it and I read past it this week and then finally it just popped out. Make sure you catch it. By the Spirit. And if your Bible is like mine, the word spirit is rightfully capitalized, meaning we're not talking about some deeper sense of the law contrasted with a more literal sense. We're contrasted, we are talking about the third person of the Godhead himself, the Holy Spirit. And so we have a rare positive in an otherwise negative text, right? Paul is saying, this will not save, this will not save, this will not save, this will not save, but by the Spirit, you can be included in the people of God. Your heart may be circumcised. What does Jesus say about the coming and the work of this Holy Spirit? Listen to what he says in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you see it? Without Christ's glorification, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and seating at the right hand of God in power, the Holy Spirit does not come. And without the Holy Spirit, Romans 2.29, our hearts will not be circumcised. And what is the result of Christ being glorified. Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go because I get to send you the helper. I get to send the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit himself, not externally, but in dwelling in you. And here's the hope, church, of Romans 2. We start to see it. We don't have to boast in the having of the law or doctrines removed from the person of God. We have the Holy Spirit who will write God's perfect law on our very hearts that it may flow forth like streams of living water. Why would we ever boast in the law? We don't have to look at the externalities of some external marker to figure out who is a member of God's covenant promise. All who are in Christ have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal, a stamp. These are mine. And the Holy Spirit does the work of circumcising our heart, and the result is always a changed life. Why would we ever boast in some empty ritual? If you would place your hope anywhere else this morning, I pray the boast has been shattered and that you would turn to Christ, that you would look to him, that we would repent of sin, and by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, which he gives graciously to everyone who believe, that we would walk with him day after day. I'm gonna let Carlton come up. He's gonna help us respond and give us our benediction.